the highest number since I've been here. I counted 65. I want you to know that I'm thankful for each and every one. I thought it might be best to take a break from our studies in 1 Corinthians, and as I was trying to think of what to talk about, I had this song, number 254, if you take out your songbook. I had this in my head all week as I was teaching through the book of Hebrews to the young boys last week. I'm thankful that at least four obeyed the gospel. We have four new brothers in Christ. But then yesterday when Scott mentioned this song, I thought it was definitely fitting. I'd already made up my mind to talk about this before he had mentioned it. But I was thinking about this first line. It says, On Jordan's stormy banks I stand and cast a wishful eye to Canaan's fair and happy land where my possessions lie. I want to talk about that. And first we've got to go back to the original story to understand it. It takes us to a scene where Joshua is finally about to cross the Jordan River and take the people of God into the promised land. But it had been a long time coming. He had waited. He had longed for it. He was ready when the rest of them weren't. He had anticipated it. Now it's finally about to happen. He's going to go into their reward. To kind of set the stage a little bit, let's go back about 400 years. And look at Genesis 12 and verse 7 and notice that God made this promise a long time ago. In verse 7, the Lord appeared unto Abram and said, Unto thy seed will I give this land. And we know that when God makes a promise, he keeps it. And then God reaffirmed that promise to Abraham in chapter 15. Look at verse 13. He said unto Abraham, Know of a surety that thy seed shall be a stranger in a land that is not theirs, and shall serve them, and they shall afflict them four hundred years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. And afterward shall they come out with great substance, and thou shalt go to thy fathers in peace, and thou shalt be buried in a good old age. But in the fourth generation they shall come hither again. Now we know how that through the history that they became slaves in Egypt. And fast forward about 400 years, came to pass in Exodus 2, Moses is born. And it says in Exodus 2 and verse 23, it came to pass in process of time that the king of Egypt died and the children of Israel sighed by reason of the bondage. And they cried, and their cry came up unto God by reason of the bondage. And God heard the groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. And God looked upon the children of Israel, and God had respect unto them. So now they're being beaten. They're under hard labor. God felt that for them. He said, I have seen the affliction of my people. And so he knows when his people are being mistreated. He knows 
their size. He knows their difficulties. He made us and he knows our frame. Then we go to Exodus chapter 3, verse 17. God says, I have said, I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt into the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites and to a land flowing with milk and honey. And so there's the promise of this great land that he's going to give them. And then go to Exodus 13. We need to know that with great reluctance at first, Moses decides, okay, I will obey you. And God leads this, and, and Moses leads the people. And he does the speaking, or Aaron does it for him, but he obeys God. God does the rest. God does the big part. And he puts all these plagues upon Egypt to show that he's greater than the gods that they worship. And he brings them out of what Moses would later call the iron furnace. And that was the description of the condition they were in in Egypt. And he does it with a mighty hand. And he leads them out to the Red Sea. And in Exodus 13 verse 21, it says, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of a cloud to lead them the way. And by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, to go by day and night. He took not away the pillar of the cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. And so while they had their backs against the wall, all they had was the sea in front of them, and the Egyptians are now coming after them. And where are they going to go? But God was with them. And God is leading them. And then in chapter 14... Verse 11, all these chariots start chasing after them. And they start realizing how difficult this is. And they're afraid. And Moses says in Exodus 14, verse 11, they said unto Moses, Because there were no graves in Egypt, hast thou taken us away to die in the wilderness? Wherefore hast thou dealt thus with us to carry us forth out of Egypt? Is not this the word that we did tell thee in Egypt, saying, Let us alone, that we may serve the Egyptians? For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. And Moses said to the people, Fear ye not. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show you to you the, today. For the Egyptians whom ye have seen today, you shall see them again no more forever. The Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. And the Lord said unto Moses, Wherefore criest thou unto me, speaking to the children of Israel, that they go forward. But lift thou up thy rod, and stretch out thine hand over the sea, and divide it, and the children of Israel shall go on dry ground through the midst of the sea. And then we see how they cross over. In Exodus 14, verse 19 through 27, they cross over on dry ground. There's a wall on the left and a wall on the right. They get across, and then God closes up the sea upon Pharaoh and his army. And so all of their oppressors and the bondage that they had for so long has now ended. 
And they're celebrating in chapter 15 with a great song in honor of God's redemption. And they talk about God who is a God of war and how he saved them. You can read about that in Exodus 15. But it didn't take them long to forget of how much God loved them and saved them and his promises. Now, what's happening is, now they're going to take and cross a smaller barrier, if you will. They've already crossed the Red Sea. They've already came out of Egypt. And there's a smaller body of water called the Jordan River. And they're supposed to cross it, but while Joshua and Caleb were ready to go over, the rest of the people lost faith. And they lost heart. And because of that, they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And Joshua and Caleb had to wait. Now fast forward that 40 years, and Moses is about to die, and Joshua is about to take the people in. But Moses taught them another song in Deuteronomy 31. Look at verse 19. Deuteronomy 31, 19. God says, Now therefore write ye this song for you and teach it to the children of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the children of Israel. For when I shall have brought them into the land which I swear unto their fathers that floweth with milk and honey, and they shall have eaten and filled themselves in waxen fat, that they will turn unto other gods and serve them and provoke me and break my covenant. And it shall come to pass when many evils and troubles are befallen them, that this song shall testify against them as a witness, for it shall not be forgotten out of the mouths of their seed. For I know their imagination which they go about even now before I have brought them into the land which I swear. Moses therefore wrote this song the same day and taught it the children of Israel. And he gave Joshua the son of Nun a charge and said, Be strong and of a good courage. For thou shalt bring the children of Israel into the land which I swear unto them, and I will be with thee. And if you'd like to read that actual song that he wrote, it's in thir chapter 32 of Deuteronomy, the first 43 verses. I encourage you to write that down, go home and read that. Then Moses died, and now Joshua has now brought the children of Israel and he's now standing on Jordan's banks. In Joshua chapter 3, notice what happens as Joshua brings them to the Jordan River. Now we're at this point. Now Joshua's ready. He had to wait through all of that. Toil and trial and death and sorrow and difficulty watching the people of God fail along the way and having to wait and wait and wait. And now the moment has come. And in Joshua 3 verse 1, Joshua rose early in the morning and they removed from Shittim and came to Jordan, he and all the children of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. That is the scene that this song is drawing us to. They're on the banks of the river. Finally about to get it into their reward after all of that time of waiting. 
Notice in verse 15, it describes this bank as it overflows all the time of harvest. So when the song talks about on Jordan's stormy banks, that's the reference to the physical place. But if you'll look uh, earlier in the chapter, in verse 3, they're to follow the ark, which represents the presence of God. They're going to have God with them. That's the biggest and most important part of this whole thing, is having God among them. In verse 4, he reminds them that you need to follow him because you have not passed this way before. Do you have to know all the details of the land? Do you have to know how it's all going to work out? Do you have to know all of that in order to follow God? But he tells them in verse 5, sanctify yourselves, and that's important. The purification of God's people in order to go into the promised land. And so now as I think about this and think about this whole story and what the song is talking about, he's now applying this to us like it's an allegory. These are real events that happened, but now how do we apply it? We are now said in the song to be standing on the banks of that river. On Jordan's stormy banks, I stand. What's that talking about? Well, as they came out of Egypt and crossed the Red Sea, that's very much like us who came out of our bondage, not of physical slavery, but the bondage of sin. When we were baptized into Christ... And we put on Christ by his death, burial, and resurrection. When we crucified our old self in repentance and we were immersed in water and contacted the blood of Christ, we came up a new creature, saved out of the bondage of sin. That was like, that's very much like us coming out of our Egypt. But very much like how they came out of Egypt and then... Some died in the wilderness. Now Joshua and the next generation are going and going to cross over the Jordan. That's like us facing death and crossing over into our promised land, not the physical land of Canaan, but, but heaven, into the presence of God himself. And the song says, as I'm standing on this bank, we're all, we're all going to face this at some point. Teach us to number our days and apply our hearts to wisdom. One of these days, we are all going to stand there. Now the question is, do we have that wishful eye? I, I love that phrase, that wishful eye. What are you thinking about? Are you ready? Are you ready to enter into the joy of the Lord? Are you drawing back in doubt and difficulty? Or are you looking with it with anticipation? I'm going to get to see my Lord face to face. And whatever I've dealt with in this life, it will all be worth it. All of that toil. The storminess of this life. I'm going to get to go in. And if we've met the Lord's conditions of grace and mercy, 
we can all enter in. It's available to, to all who will. Are you casting that wishful eye? I really want to think about that, that longing to enter into that land. I don't want to drift back in my heart and want to go back into our spiritual Egypt and sin. There's nothing back there for us. Those of you who have been saved by the blood of Christ, don't reminisce about the old days. There's nothing there. We were without God. There's nothing, I mean, it's so interesting how that the children of Israel were longing for the garlic and the cucumbers and the leeks. And they forgot about the, the, the difficulties of that bondage. I mean, there's no amount of pleasure when we were living in sin that was worth being without the blessings of, in God's family. Being accepted and adopted into his family and being right with him and being forgiven and having that hope that anchors us. It gives us stability in these stormy times that I long for that day. In Hebrews chapter 11, in verse 16, when it talked about the patriarchs who were sojourning in that land, it wasn't the physical land even for them that they were looking for. They were looking for a better country. We want to enter our promised land, and it is better. We need to remember that. There's nothing in this life that even compares, and the difficulties not even worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. That's what Paul says. In Philippians 1.23, you can see the, the desire of Paul as he faced difficulties, writing with bonds. While he's in chains, he's writing to a people in Philippians 1.23, and he says, I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ, which is far better. Don't you know it's going to be better on the other side? Can you taste it? Hebrews 6 and verse 5 talks about those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift. Can you taste it? Can you get the taste in your mouth and just feel it, what it's going to be like? where there's no more temptation. I'm not going to have to fight with this flesh and this body's pull any longer. I'm not going to have to worry about any other thing any longer. No more anxiety. No more fight that we're having to deal with. Can you taste? And the powers of the world to come, that's talking about wanting that and longing for it. When you close your eyes at night and you're laying there in your bed, are you thinking and longing and picturing being with your maker, being with Christ? In 2 Corinthians in chapter 5, when it talks about how that we're going to lay off this tabernacle and he's talking about our body, it's like a tent. It's temporary. It's not meant to last and he says, so we look at the things that are not seen. And so we need to connect our spirits with his and know that if the earthly tabernacle that we have should be dissolved, we have a building not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. 
Look at what Paul said in 2 Timothy chapter 4 as he anticipated the end of his life. He knew his time was drawing near. I can almost picture him having a gleam in his eye as he said these words. I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. And henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. For my Lord shall give not only to me, but to all them that love is appearing. Can you taste it like Paul is? In Hebrews chapter 12, one of my favorite verses, if you know me at all, it's my email address, Hebrews 12 verse 2, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. When I think about keeping my eyes fixed on the prize, I think about what Christ's prize was. How was he able to endure the contradiction of sinners? How was he able to hold his tongue when they accused him falsely? How was he able to say nothing whenever there was this rigged court accusing him and, and putting him in the place of these criminals and begging for his life as they taunted him and mocked him and ridiculed him as they spat in his face? They blindfolded him and they said, Prophesy, tell us who hit you. And as he had the power to bring 12 legions of angels and stop it and wipe us all out, he did not. And even as they said, if you're, the, if you're the Son of God, bring yourself down off the cross. And he would not. And I'm so thankful that he resisted that urge. And I think, how could he put up with that? How could he continue to lovingly die for the people who were treating him so shamefully? And it says it was for the joy that was set before him. If you've ever thought about what that joy is, it's, it's the reward that he had that allowed him and kept him to stay on that cross and that joy is you and me. We are his joy. We were worth it for him to endure that. And so now I'm going to look to him and you need to look to him as the author and finisher of our faith. That whatever we endure in this life, it is nothing. It, it's inconsequential. It's like the pearl of great price. We should sell all that we have in order to be able to obtain this because it's worth more. If you gain the whole world and lose your own soul, what is that profit? And if you miss heaven, you miss all there is. That is the reward that God has. It's not the physical land. And if you deal with weeping for now as a Christian, you might sorrow, but it's not as the world does. Weeping may happen for a moment, but joy comes in the morning. When Joshua spent that night on the banks of the river, could you imagine the excitement? 
I don't know how much longer we have, but we're going to spend the rest of our time to the will of God. We've spent enough of our time to our own self and our selfish desires. In John chapter 16, before Jesus went away, look what he said to the apostles. He's telling them, I'm going to leave you. And he talks about it being a little while. And he's feeling for them. But he's encouraging them to hang on because it's only short. John 16, verse 16, a little while, and you shall not see me. And again, a little while, and you shall see me. Because I go to the Father. Then said some of the disciples among themselves, What is this that he saith unto us? A little while, and you shall not see me. And again, a little while, and you shall see me. And because I go to the Father. They said, Therefore, what, what is this that he saith? A little while. We cannot tell what he saith. Now Jesus knew that they were desirous to ask him, and said unto them, Do ye inquire among yourselves that I said a little while, and you shall not see me? And again, a little while, and you shall see me? Here's the answer, verse 20, Verily, verily, I say unto you that ye shall weep and lament, but the world shall rejoice, and ye shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned to joy. A woman, when she's in travail, has sorrow because her hour is come. But as soon as she's delivered of the child, she remembered no more the anguish for the joy that a man is born into the world. It's a lot like that in this life. There's a lot of difficulty. But much like a mother who, when she gets her reward of her child, the, the labor was worth it. And so verse 22, And ye now therefore have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and your joy no man taketh from you. Don't let anyone take your crown. Don't let anything, don't let any distraction, don't let any fear, don't let any worrying about what other people think of you. Just go to the Lord. If you are not a Christian, I beg you, I plead with you, why not give your life to Him so that you can see Him with anticipation when He comes? You don't want to be saying, no, wait, I, I, I needed to get my life right. I was planning on it. I was going to do it one of these days, and I was almost there. One of these days, that door will be closed. And some of us will get to enter in. And many will not. When you make sure we're among the few. If you're not, why not? You can. It's available. And if you're a Christian, don't be looking back. He who looks back is not fit for the kingdom of God. Remember Lot's wife. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Keep your heart fixed where it needs to go. There will be joy in heaven. I look forward to that day. Don't let anything stand in your way. If we can help you, whatever your need is, won't you come while we stand and as we sing?